Um, hey everyone, I thought I got in here a couple minutes early, so for a bit of context, I will do a quick intro. Yeah, something I don't normally do because I forget to. Um, yeah, today we've got Doctor. I don't know. He's a doctor. <laughs> This man is a doctor, so we can't show you his face on TV. <laughs> Fuck, I'm an idiot. <laughs> Just listen. There are improvement works ahead, so this train will terminate at the next station. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Are you Muslim? <laughs> Dude, look, we're here to just have a convo. Yeah, alright? And you don't have to name names, we don't have to name you. You know, it could just be Dr. X. <laughs> Dr. X. Okay, you sound... <laughs> you literally sound like a Marvel supervillain. Um, you know, that was actually what was coming to my head when I was coming in. I was like, Dr. X, huh? <laughs> yeah, Dr. X. Dr. X. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's funny how there's so many... Um, I think it was in, was it in The Big Bang Theory, you said that he, uh, Sheldon once mentioned that so many villains had like advanced degrees. Like, how did all these super I think I know the, You know, I don't even watch Big Bang Theory. Neither do I. And I remember, I, for some reason, I remember that. Yeah. And thinking back, they do. Yeah. <laughs> they literally do. All right. Okay, all right. okay so look, we're not going <laughs> to. Right, so you're Dr. X. Okay, we've had Lawyer Y in here. So you're Dr. X. Yep. I'm going to have a whole panel of like. Of, of X, Y, Z. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Advanced. That's right. All the, all the letters of the alphabet. <laughs> I'm serious. Um, all right, we'll call you Dr. X. And the reason why I brought you down here was literally to get an idea of what you do, just for a bit of context, okay? Like we said, we don't have to mention where. And how, what your role is in how you're dealing with basically the current pandemic, okay? Because I, I, I said this to you a little while ago. I said about a year and a half ago, man, when COVID first sort of reared its head, so mid, you know, start of March, April 2020, I brought in a microbiologist, okay? whose fucking field was literally infectious diseases. And she was on the long-term unemployed list in this country. For what reason? God knows. Because yeah. we couldn't use someone with advanced knowledge in infectious diseases at the start of COVID. Like, no, no use for people like no, that. Yeah. To the point where she's left the country now. Okay. So I brought her in twice to give a little pep talk on what the hell COVID is. And... Obviously didn't take, <laughs> mm. so I figured the next time, next sort of step up would be to get someone on the front lines and give us an idea of what actually is going on. Okay, how it changes, how it affects a health a health worker on the front line. You know, um, like I said, all anonymous. Okay, you don't have to name names. All right, I'm not he- bringing you here to, to do that. Um, obviously, your credentials speak for themselves. Um, it's. It's just literally insight, man. That's all I want. Yeah, yeah, no. Okay. Of course. So, just a bit about yourself, man. Um, you've mentioned your, your education. Do you want to start, like, from the start, post-high school? Of yeah. Just a bit of background so, on yourself? So, past, so, post-high school, I finished my Bachelor of Science, mm-hmm. majored in physiology, did some, um, not microbiology, did some developmental anatomy as well. Um, from there, I sat the GAMSAT, got into medical school, and have... Last year, I completed my internship. That yeah. was r- rurally based. And this year, I've started working in a Melbourne metropolitan hospital. Well, uh, most internships are all sort of rurally based. I try and push you out there for a while. No, nah, no. Nah, so, so there's actually there's actually a 
a way they do it. It's sort of very similar to the way you apply for universities in VCE. Yeah. So you put all your preferences down and hopefully you get your first preference. Yeah. But sometimes you get a little bit unfortunate and some people will get their, get a preference that they didn't have on there either. Okay. So this is luck of the draw really. Just yeah. To- it's a little bit of luck of the draw. Okay. It's a bit of a, yeah, a bit of luck of the draw. Okay. So you've been, uh, I mean, you're still starting, you said you're doing your master's at, um. Yeah. Doing it. Yeah. So I'm doing a master's with University of Sydney. Yeah. Master of Critical Care. The plan is to do anesthetics long-term. Anesthetics. Yeah. Why? I mean, not why. <laughs> yeah, why. yeah, no, no, no. I just, the, the fizz and farm is what I enjoy about it. Yeah. So I love pharmacology, love physiology, bit of a nerd in that sense. Yeah. And in well, terms you'd of- want, you'd want, I think the general answer is you'd want your doctor to be a nerd of some kind. <laughs> like, yeah, of course, totally of course. Blood. No, but I feel like <laughs> anesthetics is one of the, one of the fields where you're more so, I guess you can see the physiology or the pharmacology working right in front of you. You give the medication, see an immediate response. Yeah. Whereas it's like real time, real time response. Exactly. To yeah. And you've got full monitoring on the patient. It's quite satisfying. Yeah. You look at every other field of medicine and I actually have enjoyed every rotation that I've, um, that I've, that I've been placed in every single rotation I've enjoyed, but I've got to say all other parts of medicine, it's a little bit of a slow burn. Yeah. So you, you know, you introduce a medication, you introduce a therapy, um, and you know, it takes some time to actually see an effect. Okay, can I ask you how long? How long have you been in the in say after post high school? Let's say from your first year of uni to now working as a your resident doctor. Yeah, resident doctor. All right, so your resident doctor. How long has that sort of all been? So following uni, it probably took about eight years. Took a bit of a break in between as well. Yeah. Um, and the break I took was to sit the GAMSAT, which is the medical entry exam. Yeah. And I thought it was best to. My grades were good in. Um, in, under, in my undergraduate degree, but I needed to make sure I got a something a very high grade yeah, during my GAMSAT to be competitive enough to get into medicine. Yeah, okay. Um, what was I going to say to you? What was your motivation, man, to get into medicine? When did you know you wanted to be a doctor, first of all? Well, during high school, but I went to a pretty crappy high school <laughs> and um, probably wasn't the best start. <laughs> Dream shattered. No, no, no. It was, you, look, I'm probably, one of the, I'm probably the only doctor from my year level. From what I know, yeah, uh, most people didn't go to university after high school. Most of my, most of my, yeah. So <laughs> my high school was either in jail. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But and I remember during high school talking about it and being like, "Look, I think I want to do medicine." And yeah. you know, not people not laughing, but people smiling, and there's not really like a yeah, it's like, like you're oh, you're a bit of a drop. Not you're a drop kick, but yeah, the odds are against you. Where, where are you going, mate? Exactly, exactly. And going on from there. I think that sort of became my motivation to push on anyway. Did you do any subjects in high school that would have related to trade to medicine? Biology, chemistry. Okay. Do you reckon they're well nurtured in high school? Obviously, yeah. depending on what school you're in, I'm so assuming. I think, so, do you think your formative years were nurtured in regards to where you want to take your career? Because, look, when I was in year, year 11, 12, I had no fucking idea what I wanted to do. Mm. I knew what I wanted to do. It was nothing to do with anything scholastic, you know what I mean? And to be perfectly honest, when it came time to graduate and pick, you know, electives for, you know, going into uni or TAFE, whatever, I had no idea. Someone didn't for me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So what what, like, what was it like for you, like moving on? Was it easy yeah, to good, sort of map? Good question. So I think, <laughs> I think my interest in exercise, health and all that sort of stuff sort of got me into that actually what, what made me interested in, in medicine. Like yeah. I want to learn more about the human body you know, your anatomy, your physiology, all that sort of stuff. Um, you want to you learn about how medication works. You find that kind of interesting. 
Um, doing biology, I did biology quite early on. So I did VC biology when I was in year 10. Yeah. And that was probably the start of it. When I started doing bio, I'm like, oh, this is kind of cool. I don't think I did. I didn't do great in bio, but it was, you know, it was, it was an introduction and I could see myself doing this long term. Then chemistry, again, chemistry was something I enjoyed. Um, and then physics was something I dropped out of because I didn't have the, <laughs> I didn't have the motivation to pursue. But my brain actually, I've got to say, in that regard, my, that sort of formulaic way of thinking and problem solving, it's probably the way my brain works. And I understood physics. I understood maths very well. I just didn't pursue them. Yeah. Out of effort. <laughs> but when I had to do the GAMSAT, I had to, I had to go all, over all those topics from the start. So I had to go, over pretty much year 11, year 12, university level, chem, organic chem, physics, biology, all from My the start. My brain is hurting. Just, just no, 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 but it's all from the start because the GAMS, that's a, it's a six-hour exam. You've got three hours of science. You've got an hour and a half of, yeah, I think it's an hour and a half of humanities and then one hour of this essays. This is to get your foot into like- This is to get an interview. <laughs> and then, so if you get, you have to get a top grade on the GAMSAT. So to get an interview, usually when I was when I was entering medical school, you needed um, pretty much a perfect undergraduate degree score. So pretty much you needed to HD everything. Yeah, you, you needed a perfect GPA, and then you also needed pretty much a top score on the GAMSAT, and that means being like the top of everyone that's sitting the exam. I think at least the top five percent, and this is everyone sitting the exam to get into medicine. So not everyone sitting the VCE exam. Yeah, you're not. You're not. So you know, guys that are going into trade school. Exactly. I didn't, I didn't get a. I didn't get a. I didn't get an awesome ATAR score. I mean, I did alright, but like I didn't do. You know, I didn't get ninety nine or anything like that. But what you find is those people that went to the private schools and, um, the people that did get those really high scores, they had a lot of, I guess, background help. They had tutoring. Uh, they came from a very, you know, a very financially well off family. Um, they pretty much had everything. So you think there's a link them. between private schools and public school sector? Well, what I was going to say is you actually see the difference between the person that sort of got not pushed, but got that assistance to get that really, to get that great, fantastic score. And then the person that really wants to do it. Yeah. Because at that stage, you don't have all that assistance and it's really up to you. You're competing against everyone that wants to do this, have, wants to have the same career pathway as you. Yeah. And that's when things become a bit different. And if you're persistent, um, a lot of people gave up after the first or second attempt. I did three attempts. First one was shit. Second one was all right. Third one, I went all in, treated it like a job, studied from eight till the morning till eight. Your ten, face is ten breaking up. Just, yeah, just it was, thinking. It was like 12 to 14 hour days getting yeah. ready for the GAMSAT because the science section was okay for me, but the the section on humanities and the section on essays was a section I was did very poor on normally. Yeah. And then I managed to get my essay section from a, to barely passing the GAMSAT. So pretty much in the lowest like quartile or whatever. I managed to get in the top point, I think like top 0.5% or something yeah. of essays. So I did f- amazing. That's actually what li- lifted my score. But in saying that I was writing as well as doing three hour sex, uh, sorry, three hour uh, science sections every day and then studying my, the topics I was need a little bit more um, yeah, just knowledge on. on. Yeah, I was writing like six essays timed a day. Timed time. So half yeah, an yeah, hour an essay. You time ha- yourself half an hour an essay. Pumping out an essay. So I do two in the morning, two in the afternoon, two at night. In between the the, the rest of the study. 
So, but this was me being like, this is it. I want to do this. This is my barrier. I've got to overcome the barrier. So I'm going to put all my effort into that and take it from there. Yeah, it's persistence. Like you knew exactly what you had to do to break through and that's what you did. Exactly. You've got to remember, man, like with all anything we're sort of discussing, you've got to treat me like a layman, a complete layman. You've got to break things down to like baby talk purely because I want... I don't want to get anything. I don't want anything lost in translation, man. I want this to be a hundred percent clear, and even just mentioning just the studying that you had to do to get an and just to get an interview into school. That's one. That's for me. That's like in the sitcoms or the cartoons where someone's just staring and all these uh, science-related uh, Greek Latin alphabet sort of shit just starts flying over their head, and they're like, "What the hell okay, is yeah, yeah, talking so about?" Simplify it. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm, I'm just saying, like, that's what it feels like. Because it's like, Jesus Christ, you are actually an individual that has studied his balls off to get to where you are, mm. you know? There's different variations of success, but one thing I'll always respect is medicine and science, purely for the fact that you have to grind just to get just to get a knock, just to be able to sit in front of people that can say, hey, yeah, okay, so you want to join, you want to start something here, you know? That's actually a really interesting um, concept, or I guess idea. The fact that I guess medicine's one of the great ones in that if you pursue medicine, you in terms of job prospects, yeah, you always have a job. Yeah, doesn't matter. You, as long as you've got a medical degree, you will always have a job. But um, all other sectors of science, it's exactly what you just said as well. It's grind, 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 and they're grinding. Sometimes they're grinding even harder, especially people doing their PhDs. Um, like your, your friend, the microbiologist yeah. and so on. Uh, there's a lot of work that goes into that for very little return. So that, that really does yeah. require, you know, that, that really has earned itself some respect in that regard. Let's just, we'll skip forward, right? You've established, you've done your, how much, how much time did you do, say, like out of uni, you started going through the paces, you started collecting, you know, certificates and la 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 and kept going. How much sort of practice did you have to do before you became like senior residency? When you say prac, do you mean how many, like... Like just out in the field, basically doing real world sort of stuff as opposed oh, to... Okay, so you do your internship for a year. Yeah. And there's three core rotations that you've got to complete. That's emergency medicine. So working in the ED. Yeah. Your surgical uh, internship. So that's three months of a surgical rotation. Usually that's general surge. So it's just like your, I guess, anything within the abdomen is yeah. a good way to think about it. And you're not actually performing surgery, you're just dealing with surgical patients. So you're looking after them while the surgeons do their thing. Yeah. And then you do a medical rotation. And medical rotation is just pretty much anything and everything that comes into the hospital that requires like a hospital stay. So it's gen med is just pretty much right. So to break it down, it's just like if you've got pneumonia, <laughs> if you've got heart failure, I mean, and it's not severe enough to get you into a respiratory department or a or a, you're not or a in cardiac ICU. Yeah. yeah oh no 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 you're not in ccu you're not in the respiratory ward you're not whatever and it's you've got multiple problems you end up in gen med so it's just these complicated patients that you just usually although everyone has all these different problems they all get pretty much the same treatment which is steroids fluids <laughs> and like <laughs> antibiotics so why? Yeah. Uh, why is that? It's just because. Oh, just the nature of the diseases that they have. So it's always, always, it's always lead back to steroids. It, no, no, it's it's so corticosteroids. So the yeah. catabolic catabolic steroids. They they pretty much reduce inflammation and yeah, make usually make people feel a lot better. 
But the reason why that's usually the treatment is because it's a bit of a, I guess with these gen med patients, a bit of a balancing act. They've usually got an issue with their heart. They've got an issue with their lungs. They've got an issue with their kidneys. They've either got, oh, and diuretics, that's the other one. Anti- so steroids, antibiotics, and diuretics. And then maybe fluids if their blood pressure is low. So it's a bit of a balancing act between all of that. Sounds chaotic, man. Oh, it is. It is. It is. It is. But like, as the as time goes on, you get more comfortable with it. You get an idea of what you're treating and what your outcomes are, what your goals are. Um, you know, so you get a sense of what needs to come into hospital. You get a sense of when someone's ready to get out of hospital, and you know how yeah, they should be cared in between. You're sort of seeing symptoms. You're sort of seeing um, development. You're seeing a track of general yeah. patients. Like, and okay, although, and you're although, recognizing yeah, things, and yeah. although that's what I'm seeing now, especially on one of the rotations that I'm on currently, is very different to what I want to specialize in. Um, it's really nice to see that that trajectory and um, see the end result. Okay, what was it like being an ED? ED. So last year in the country, um, this is the great thing about working, doing your internship in the country. You get to do quite a bit very early on. As a junior, um, usually there's there's they're usually understaffed. Yeah. Um, so you get to take on a little bit more responsibility. If you want to do certain procedures that you wouldn't otherwise do until your you know second, third, maybe fourth year in a city hospital, you might get to do it very early on. So you're exposed to a lot of stuff and just thrown in the deep end, basically. Yeah, thrown into the deep end. And like, although it's understaffed, sometimes you get more support because there's fewer people and you get closer with the with the people that you're working with. Your senior staff are more likely to, you know, supervise something and, you know, help you out somewhere. So yeah. in that, yeah, in that, in that respect, you sort of get more opportunities to... Man, I've got to say, like, over the last sort of 18 months, two years, I've spent a bit of time going in and out of, like, EDs and ICUs and things like that. So, I've seen it, like, I've seen the frantic nature of how yep. how quickly, like, these departments can get overwhelmed. Yeah. If that so makes that's sense. A, that's, 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 a, that's a big issue, and especially currently when we're talking about the yeah. COVID situation. And that's man, like, even just, I think what people sort of fail to realize is you're not only dealing, say, with the current pandemic, but you're dealing with anything that pops off. I mean, you ever been in Dandy ED at two in the morning, man? You've got anyone walking in. You've got people on ice coming in, you know, that they're trying to subdue. You've got some dude that's like cut his leg off by accident. You know, it's all random shit. You've got an old guy who's keeling over because of pneumonia that was left undiagnosed, you know? Mm. So I've just like overwhelmed is like the nicest way I can sort of put it. The, mo- the, the way I can say it to myself without giving myself an anxiety attack, you know? Yeah. So what has been happening the threshold in terms of what's required to come into hospital has gone up and up and up. Unless you're super, super sick, yeah, you're not coming into hospital because we don't have the room for you. And that's what it was like during COVID. Well, we're still there. Right? Well, we still are. Well, actually, it is getting better. Yeah. I can speak from experience where I'm working at the moment. Um, the amount of the amount of um, COVID positive, sick COVID positive patients that we have has gone down, and I attribute that almost solely to our vaccination rate currently. Yeah, because I saw a massive drop in the in the hospital admissions and the amount of people that we were caring for, the amount of met calls, which is an emergency call, the amount of code blues that I was hearing over the announcements. They have gone down significantly in the last three four weeks. Code blue meaning. Oh, so Code Blue's a... Yeah. <laughs> I haven't it, watched enough ER, man. Yeah, so <laughs> met calls like an emergency call, so their vital yeah. signs are... 
Oh. So their blood pressure, their heart rate, then I know exactly their respiratory rate, yeah. their um, their oxygen levels are out of the normal ranges. It's We need a team of experts to come and review this yeah. and sort it out. I, yeah, I've, man, that those moments, I, I can say, the, just give me PTSD, man. Like, I'm, I'm here, I'm remembering, like, ICUs that I was in and just seeing swarms of dudes just suddenly running into a room around a guy on a bed. You yeah, know? so so in an ICU, what would be happening is more code blues than met calls. Met calls would happen on the other wards and usually an ICU doctor or an ICU, a very experienced ICU nurse would be going to the met call as well as a medical doctor. Yeah. So it would be a... A registrar, a medical registrar, usually. Um, usually the home team of that patient, so the medical team of that patient, as well as someone, a member from ICU, whether that be an ICU registrar, whether that be an ICU nurse, someone else as well. Can I ask you, so how long have you been a, re- a resident now? So this is my, I'm heading towards the end of my first year of residency, and last year I was an intern. Okay, so you were an intern during the start of COVID, basically. Yeah, pretty much. So you've been in the system during the whole sort of period. Yeah, but I've got to say, um, having worked rurally, we were very fortunate in that the cases didn't get there. When they did get there, it was shut off very quickly. Yeah. So that was one of the that was the one one of the great things about that. I can't say the same during this year. If I was there this year, it would have been a problem. Yeah. Um, lots of rural locations were like that. They were a little bit overwhelmed with the uh, with the rates because they didn't have the they didn't have the ICU, um, they didn't have the space, they didn't have the staff uh, to be able to cater to the needs of a COVID positive patient. That's how um this is something I was wondering, dying. man. How prepped were you for COVID? As in doing an internship of like you know just generally like within your within your specific field of knowledge. And your experience going into your residency, you know, for the first year, how much prep did you actually have for, say, respiratory uh, respiratory conditions and COVID itself? So one thing that people forget is when we're talking about respiratory conditions, if you've got COVID and you need to be intubated, doing an intubation. I've done intubations before. I've done them under supervision of a of a qualified anaesthetist, or you yeah. Know, um, so explain the, explain the whole process, basically. So an intubation is pretty much the best way to explain is getting a tube down someone's airway yep. to support the airway so that you can, so that you, I guess, so you've got full control of the airway. You can administer oxygen at whatever percentage that you, that's required. And you can, you can increase the pressures. You can decrease the pressures to inflate and deflate the lungs. Yeah. And with that, it, it can't be, a, it's not a permanent solution because you, no, can, no, no. you develop pneumonia after an extended period, don't you? Well, usually people get intubated because they've got severe COVID in this, so we'll talk because it's a different disease and the management's very different. We'll talk specifically about COVID. Okay. In regards to COVID, what we're trying to do is we're trying to bide enough time for the patient to recover. Yep. And in the the patients that I've seen who have had COVID pneumonia and have been intubated, uh, a lot of them don't recover and either remain on the ventilator or pass away. Yep. When you say remain on a ventilator, you mean remain until the family is accepting of the fact that they will never recover Shit. and then they're palliated. What's the turning point? What's the time frame there? Like, let's say... So, from the cases that I've seen, people get sick. Maybe they're sick for... And they're infectious for seven to ten days, something like that. And around that time period, they get super, super sick. 
they get what we've called what we call a cytokine storm that a lot of people have probably heard on the news. Like pretty much the immune system goes a little bit crazy, gets a bit overwhelmed, and the uh, lungs just get filled up with all this fluid, and um, they start developing all the immune cells start laying down scar tissue, and the lungs get really damaged. And what happens at this in when they get to that point, breathing in normal air isn't enough. So when we breathe in normal air, normal air is 21% oxygen. Not the, it's not 100% oxygen, it's 21% oxygen. That will not maintain oxygen saturation, so oxygen levels in the blood high enough to be compatible with life. So what do we do next? When they're not getting enough oxygen via the air that they're breathing in, we put an oxygen mask on. So that's a face mask. Yeah. And there's different levels of that. There's, there's, you know, there's low to high flow. Man, I'm a, I'm a, I, was, I grew up as a chronic asthmatic man, so I've had that oxygen mask on my face okay. plenty of times. You know okay, I mean? so you've probably had, have you, had <clears throat> have you heard of BiPAP? BiPAP. BiPAP. CPAP. Okay, that's all right. <laughs> high flow nasal prongs. So really, okay. Well, these are, they're sort of like, they, they provide, as well as providing 100% oxygen or a very high percentage of oxygen, they also provide pressure support. So it's open and splint the airways open. Yeah. Because these, as you'd imagine, if you had like a, I don't know, if you had a balloon, right? A balloon and you're going to blow it up. If you had a nice dry balloon and you tried to blow it up, it's really easy to blow up. Yeah, it expands. Yeah, Yeah. if you put a little bit of like a couple of drops of water inside that balloon, all of a sudden the water molecules are sort of attracted to themselves. Yeah. And then you're like, imagine how much pressure you need to blow up that balloon. Imagine that's your lungs now. Yep. And there's all that fluid and all that crap in there, and you're trying to expand these lungs. You need a lot of pressure. Yep. But when you give a lot of pressure, you can also cause damage to the lungs. And that's something that we also see with um, people who are intubated with COVID pneumonia as well. They require very, very high pressures to inflate the lungs. But not enough to actually leave with standing damage. Oh, no, no, no. Sometimes they'll get damaged as well. That's what I wanted to bring up. Yeah. So they, yeah. It's like a balancing act between... It's a balancing act between giving enough oxygen and giving a high enough pressure to maintain normal oxygen... Oh, not even normal, actually. That's a lie. Not normal. To maintain oxygen saturations that are compatible with life. It's it's crazy for you to say that in that way. Compatible with life. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's what's been lost on this whole sort of thing, man. Like, we've covered COVID, like, obviously, on this podcast, man. Like, we, we tried... We try not to dwell on it, right? Because it's just been, everyone's sort of had their head done in with it. But people are forgetting that, man, that it's about <laughs> compatible with life. These are life and death situations. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that's obviously, man, like, so what, say going in, you know, with your first year of residency, man, how did you cope with like, let's forget, okay, start with the hospitals itself, man, without naming hospitals. At what capacity are they working at to maintain Inbound patients. Oh, well and truly over capacity. Yeah? Over capacity. The health system is always working. Um, I guess it's, you know, it's always, it doesn't matter what time you ask a hospital, like it doesn't matter what, what moment in time, I guess you speak to someone in the hospital. Um, the hospitals are always working at full capacity. Like before COVID, I'm sure it was very difficult to get a hospital bed. Right? Yeah. Yeah, no, it hospitals was. are always full. Every time you go to ED, and, you're sitting there for yeah, five yeah. hours. 
the extent to how full a hospital is will determine how many people are allowed to come in to hospital. So, you know, you like I was talking about that threshold, that threshold goes up depending on how busy the hospital is. So, if you've got a, blo- uh, a runny nose, like you're not coming... Oh, in. you're never coming into yeah. hospital for a bleed, for a runny nose. If you're, if you're nose. bleeding from, yeah. from your ass, uh, <laughs> No, even that might, like, you know, people can have non-severe bit bleeds. It can be like a yeah, hemorrhoid just, or... Yeah. yeah. So, there's like, there's things that... The job of ED is pretty much to figure out what needs to come in and what doesn't need to come in. Yeah, they do that as spot assessment or whatever it is, and it's like... Yeah, it's not really a spot assessment. It's more like you, you do a workup, ask the questions, take a history, do your exam, and then you're like, all right, is this something important? Is this something the GP can manage? Is this something the patient can manage themselves with some advice from yourself and possibly a prescription for some medications? Um, or is this something that needs to come into hospital? And with the COVID situation, there was no... so. Everyone coming into hospital through ED pretty much was COVID and dying. And then everything else was left to the back of the line because it wasn't severe enough. And when I say people are coming into COVID and dying, people are coming in extremely short of breath, unable to breathe from home with an ambulance. Yeah. And you know, their partner or someone's calling the hospital and being like, look, this person's gone blue. Um, they can't talk. They're really short of breath. I don't know what to do. Should I come into hospital now? And then usually someone over the phone will be like, call an ambulance, bring him in. Man, so, so with these severe cases of COVID, these are all ages, right? Yeah, so it varies. It's very unpredictable in terms of who it affects. When when all the shit with COVID first started, the whole gist of it was, and this is what the anti-vaxxers and the anti-COVID conspiracy theorists were saying, it's only affecting the old people. Yeah, I think with the so I think with the with the first variant of of COVID that came through, was it pre Delta or yeah pre Delta pre Delta? Um, I can say that it affects mostly the elderly. Yeah, which doesn't mean it's still not a problem. Yeah, right. Circulating, it can mutate in variant strains as we as we experience. Yeah, I think it was still a threat for young people. You probably heard back then there were quite a few young people in hospital as well that were not doing well. Yeah. So, again, it was still unpredictable. But with the Delta strain, it just smashed through us. Like, we were fortunate in that we prioritized getting people over the age of 65 vaccinated because who knows what Delta would have done to them because it's doing it was doing, it was doing crazy things to people under the age of 65 as well. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know of people in their 20s who got intubated. No previous lung issues, no other comorbidities, no other illnesses, no diseases, healthy 20-year-olds that have just, yeah. Just collapsed, basically. I wouldn't say collapsed, but they've come in very short of breath with COVID pneumonia. To the point where if they don't get hooked up somewhere... They would likely deteriorate and die, yes. That's that, that point. That's how bad, yeah, yeah. <sighs> How did see, man? It's I just I spoke to my mum today, man. I haven't seen her for a while, and I ran into her at the shops, and she said to me that her cousin in Greece, um, just is in the forms in the state later stages of recovering from COVID, but I didn't even know she had it. And these idiots went ten days without seeking help because apparently people with vaccines were dying off quicker than people with. Uh, Without them. Nobody with it. No, no. Look, this is what she said. She goes, they, they were just anti-vaxxers, left her for 10 days until she literally, you know, was at death's door. And she was, yeah, f- hooked up, 
done, and they're, they're still wondering if she's even going to get out of the hospital without severe, severe damage. It's going to be, it's irre- yeah. irreversible. So yeah. for you to say that you were looking at 20 year olds, you know, people in their twenties, healthy people with no pre-existing conditions of, you know, um, respiratory uh, uh, issues and shit like that. How, how did that affect you, man? I mean, you're a young bloke, you know, you're not, you're not. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's pretty scary because, um, at the time my, my parents had gotten the, you know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't until later on that we could, um, that people were eligible for vaccines yeah, under no. the age of 65. And my parents had gotten the AstraZeneca. And I knew it was a six week gap between their yeah. first and second vaccine vaccines. And I'm like, Oh, what happens? Like, you know, somebody, I don't know. My brother goes to work and yeah, whatever gives it, it to yeah. them. Who knows? Like, yeah, that was a, that was, that was quite scary. And it was scary for myself. I'm like, what if I get it? Even though I'm vaccinated, like, my risk is significantly lower than any than, than an unvaccinated person to get severely Ill, Ill with it, but you know it's still it's still a very very dangerous virus. Yeah, it's a life threatening virus. It's a killer virus, and I think yeah, despite that, even even as a vaccinated person, I think it is still important to um to take precautions and to be safe during this period until we, I guess, have more and more solutions and more and more treatments. Yeah. But I'm um, getting vaccinated is the, the first step and it seems to be the most effective step so far. What for in the periods when like, you know, your hospital will be inundated with like, you know, patients coming in inbound and all that sort of stuff. What was your average sort of work run? Like what time would you start work? What time would you finish? Were you stopping to take a piece or were you just holding it for like 14 hours? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it- just for the general front line, basically. I think it's really hard to say because I was, um, so I was redeployed to a COVID ICU. Yeah. And, you know, I was doing a lot of work there as one of the resident doctors. Um, but the patients that are there, there's not really much you're doing for because it's too late or? Yeah, it's too late. They need oxygen via a tube. That's they it. need to be fed via a line. And then you just sit there and change the pressures of their, of their ventilator. How? Like there's not, there's, there's really. Once it's at that point. They're occupying really all that's happening at that point is you've got a patient occupying a bed. Um, and usually they. In a lot of a lot of cases, they don't make it if they've gotten to that point. And we, you know, we we do the right thing. We you, you keep them on the ventilator. You see if they recover, but in most cases, they don't recover. The way I'm seeing it, it's almost like a, if they're unvaccinated, it's like is. a straight to hospice sort of thing. Like you're coming in, and it's like you've you've punched a ticket, and you're just going to make them comfortable until. For a lot of people, that yeah. yeah, that's the that's the case. There's a lot of people as well that. Um, quite a large number of people that needed hospital admission for COVID pneumonia, but um, they only required, you know, that the high flow oxygen through that mask that I was talking about, which is less invasive. But, you know, those out of all those patients, they could deteriorate at any point as well. Yeah. And, you know, who's to say, who's, who's to know how they'd be without that oxygen if they were just at home. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, Australia, we've got a, Awesome. We've got one of the best health systems in the world and we're encountering problems such as that where we, we're not, where there's people that need oxygen and aren't able to come in to get oxygen. And something like oxygen. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like some random drug that you have to bring in from, you know, Brazil. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure I didn't work a lot with hospital in the home, which is just a service that's offered from the hospital to um, sort of deliver care in the patient's home environment. But that was completely filled with COVID patients. So I think they were taking oxygen to people's homes and um, oxygen monitors for their f- the finger probe so they can see their levels and see how bad or how good they're doing. Yeah. When, um, when you say like at capacity, what's the average, like I said, what is the average run for either a, a resident doctor or, a, you know, a attending nurse or anything like that in a period of like, I mean, you're saying everything, it's always at capacity. So is that literally, you're just on your feet dealing with yeah, monitoring yeah. So, the whole uh, Yeah, you know, usually a shift, any sort of shift, you're just, you're working from the start to the finish. As a, as a, as a doctor, you usually don't get, you get a break um, and that break is not a rostered break. It's a break to eat when you it's feel, when, it's when do you, when you get a chance to. When there's a break in the wall. And exactly. You can step away. Exactly. It's, when it's there's a break, you, yeah. when there's a break, when there's a break available, yeah. you don't, you have to make time for it still. Like you literally have to be like, all right, I've got to stop what I'm doing right now to make sure I eat and drink some water so that I can continue to work. I think one of the big problems with COVID was uh, the PPE. So as you'd imagine, having to gown up, having to um, have, having to, it's called donning, getting all your gear on. You're not wearing doffing. just scrubs. You're, no, you're no, wearing- no, no, no. You're wearing scrubs. You're wearing a different set of scrubs every time you go into the hospital that the hospital um, supplies. And then you are wearing your gown, your gloves, your mask, which is a N95 mask. And if you can probably see in my nose, it's not so bad now. It was bad uh, probably a couple of months ago, but um, leaves a nice mark around your nose yeah. and around your face from wearing it all day. Um, and you're wearing also a face shield. Yeah, the visor thing. Yeah, so you're wearing a shield, a mask, a gown, gloves. Uh, you're washing your hands multiple times every time you go in, every time you go out. Um, and you know, that's just to do something small, like just have even have a conversation with the patient. Really? Oh yeah. You, you, the rooms are usually, so where I'm working, actually, we didn't have, we didn't have enough negative pressure rooms. Um, pretty much we had to make do with the rooms that we had, the, the rooms the hospital had, cause we didn't have enough, uh, I guess negative pressure rooms where, um, the virus is less likely to transmit and because of the, because of the air conditioning system and a whole bunch of logistical things related to the hospital, uh, we had to, yeah, make do and, uh, follow obviously a separate set of precautions as well. So as having like these, uh, special, like, I don't know what they are, little air conditioning things in the, in the rooms and in the wards and yeah, so on. But you're doing that every time you enter, the doors are closed for all of these patients and every time you enter, you have to wear a different set of PPE. So that process alone is, yeah, it's just exhausting just to see one person. But then wearing it, it's just, you're just warm, you're sweaty, um, your face is getting hot from the shield, from the mask. It's, yeah, it's pretty full on. I spent a lot of time during the last like 18 months arguing with people over PPE, you know, especially the idiots that came out at the start trying to say that the shit doesn't work and that PPE doesn't work. Yeah. So vaccines don't work and PPE doesn't work. Is that what they're saying? You haven't read the news, man. <laughs> you haven't seen the people protesting down parliament, man. I'm glad that 
you've been away from that because you're actually working to keep people yeah. fucking alive. I spend a lot of time arguing with people, man, to the point where, like, <laughs> you question friendships after half the time, man, because it's like, oh, I definitely, I definitely knew a couple of people that were on the fence of, or anyone that I knew that was on the fence in regards to vaccination. I called them up straight up and I told them, I told them all about some of the some of the the, the presentations that I was seeing, yeah, and the fact that pretty much, actually, all of these present. Let me just start off by saying. I didn't, I didn't think I highlighted this earlier, but all of these patients, pretty much almost all of them, were unvaccinated. I don't know where this bullshit is coming out about people. Uh, people are still getting sick if they're vaccinated. If you're vaccinated and you get COVID, you're, the likelihood of you requiring a hospital admission is very low. The likelihood of you requiring ICU intubation is extremely low. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to sit here and lie and say that it doesn't occur. It does occur, but it's very rare. I mean, like, you know, you look at a ward full of 40 people and maybe like a handful will have had one jab. And so they're not even fully protected. Yeah. And, you know, as I think, people forget as well that you're not protected until weeks or you're not fully protected until, you know, a couple of a week or longer after your second vaccination. So it takes some time to build up that immunity. Even after you get vaccination, you don't just get the jab and now you're, now you're immune. It takes some time to develop that. And the people, you barely saw anyone who was within that six month period following their second vaccination, unless they were extremely old and extremely unwell to begin with. And I'm talking about the type of people where a cold would really tip them over the edge. Yeah. How do you? How does it make you feel, man, knowing that people were protesting fucking mask mandates and saying it was their God-given right to be free and blah, blah, blah? Yeah, no. <laughs> it, was a, it was actually so... Fr- it was... I've got to say, it was, a bit, it was kind of entertaining to a, to, a, to a point because I was like, I can't believe they are they are protesting against this. Like, we literally have a killer virus that's that's spreading around Australia. It's overwhelming our health system. And these guys are complaining about a bloody mask and the vaccine. Yeah. Could you imagine? Uh, the one thing that always comes to me is imagine if you were told that there's a killer virus killing people all over the world. It's a global pandemic. And we're going to... But, but we've got a solution. We're going to give you a vaccination. And we're going to give it to you for free, right? We're going to give it to you for free. And this will significantly reduce your risk of dying from this illness. Yeah. Imagine you refused it. Like pre-COVID, if anyone gave you this situation, you would straight up be like, oh, yeah, of course. Of course I'd take up this vaccination. Who? You'd be more or not to, but yet. We're in the situation and people are protesting. And I guess you know where the protests are coming in because we haven't seen the worst of it because we were in lockdown and fortunately a lot of people were abiding by the rules and we prevented a, yeah, we prevented a, a serious issue. Yeah. I use the analogy with um, seatbelts a lot. My big thing is that people that sit here and argue about masks and preventatives like that, you know, they don't do shit. And the vaccine is all a hoax and fucking blah, blah, blah. And they just want to kill us off and all that sort of shit. I keep having to remind people just how hard the government works to keep you alive. Yeah. You know it's what I mean? It's not in the government's interest to be paying. Yeah. Right? To be 
to be just supplying these vaccinations for free if they did nothing. Yeah. It costs the government money to have people in hospital getting sick. They want to reduce the likelihood of that happening. So it's feasible for us to provide vaccination to the whole country to keep everyone safe and prevent people going into hospital, prevent people from dying. It's not, and that's the thing. It's not even with the, it's not even with COVID like in general, it's across the board from the toys that you give your kids to what the, the toys are made of, whether you're going to buy, oh, yeah, there's a lot. You, you could buy your son a toy, you know, at Christmas. So much strenuous, like stringent testing has happened to make sure that toy isn't going to kill him. The, the, the t- chemicals in it, in the toy aren't going to kill the kid. The parts that come off it aren't going to get swallowed. You know what I mean? And kill a kid or stab him. You know what I mean? I've worked in importing where I've brought in pro- produce from overseas. The amount of testing we've had to submit, you know, like just, just, yeah, what's this? Where's it come from? Okay. Where's all the data behind it to show that it's not going to interfere with our f- flora and fauna or kill someone coming in off the docks before it's ingested? The amount of shit that the government does behind the scenes and openly to protect the lives of the people in this country. That's what pisses me off, man. So when you're telling you're just describing donning and, and you know, d- d- like putting shit on just to keep people, just to have a conversation with a poor bastard in, an, in a room, and then you've got idiots protesting the, the mask mandates. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, surely, I mean, you and your colleagues, man, like, you just sit there scratching your heads. Oh, it's, it's, yeah. I guess all you can do is laugh, really. Like, you're just like, I can't believe this is happening. And I guess when when people do become severely unwell and end up in ICU and end up on a ventilator, um, what you find from a lot of the families, particularly because, you know, sometimes you have someone that's a little bit more elderly and, you know, they've got children in their 20s or 30s who have just, they've been the ones who have been like, don't get vaccinated. They're trying to kill you. Their government's... It's a conspiracy theory. The government's trying to kill you off as well as everyone else. Don't get the vaccine. Uh, they never look, they never really come around even when the, I mean, some do and especially the patients, there's patients that come in and, you know, pre-intubation or when they're on the highest level of mask oxygen, they're like, can you give us, can you give us the vaccine now? <laughs> it's too late at that point. You can't give anything. It's, it's not going to help. Um, but in the other circumstance where things turn around, you see the family members are still still believe that the vaccine would not have helped the situation. And you're like, we're in an ICU and everyone here hasn't had the vaccine that's in here. Like, uh, we haven't seen people in your father or mother's state who have been vaccinated. We think the vaccine would have helped. So clearly, so, like, the, med- the medical staff working in these facilities have been vaxxed, obviously. They're wearing the PPE, yeah. and they're not falling off with COVID. No, exactly. How are they yeah. managing to, to exactly. literally work no. and operate? And they always bring it down to something else, or like, oh, we didn't give them ivermectin, or we didn't give them this, and we didn't give them that. It's like, well, we, we're working with evidence-based medicine. We don't give something unless it's got enough proof that it works. Again, part and of the whole... And there's been trials on ivermectin and <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't work that well. We've, the treatments that we currently have, and there's a whole range of treatments, and Alfred's one of the leads in the um, in the terms of the treatment of COVID. At the moment, they've got quite a few protocols and they share those with um, quite a few hospitals. And I think when you're applying for your... Don't I think I know when you're applying for medications to treat someone with, with COVID pneumonia, they have to reach a certain criteria in terms of their oxygen levels and so on. Yeah. And then you apply for the medication and the medication comes and you 
you treat the you treat the patient to make sure that they get better. So if this treatment's there, they're not amazing. They're the best we've got. It's prevention is better than prevention is better than, and it's not really a cure. But I'm going to say a cure. Yeah. What are like? I mean, everyone that's coming in, like all the patients that are coming in, unvaxxed, all that sort of stuff. Like you said, they. It's always it always comes down to something else not being having been administered. Yeah, that's exactly that's always the argument. It's always like it's because you didn't do this. It's not. It's never because they didn't get the vaccine. And unfortunately, what really gets to me is that I guess these are going to be the people going out afterwards and telling people, "Yeah, no, the hospital killed my my loved one," and you're just like, oh. so it's it's mishandling and mismanagement. It's not. Yeah, and I understand where that comes from as well. You've got to imagine that if you were that person, and you know, you know what? It's not even their fault. It's I guess it's a system fault because they obviously didn't have the health literacy to understand that the vaccine is effective. So there's a there's something hasn't gone right along the way, right? Yeah, I mean, you've got to remember. I mean, even I'm an idiot. I've got a basic understanding of some of the stuff you're saying. But no, 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 no. But some people don't. Unfortunately, not a lot of people have that privilege of. Um, I guess being exposed to the right people and getting the information from, you know, the right people. And I guess that's, that's why they might refuse the vaccine and might not believe that it works. So how how do you actually feel when you, you see people you consider to be intelligent people making educated decisions in their lives coming out and just rehashing all the conspiracy shit about vaccines, masks, Uh. (laughs) I can't even comment on that, but we'll go back to the we'll go back to the family issue, and you'll notice that what I wanted to say was I kind of get where they come from in the end because they must be feeling some sort of guilt. Yeah, and the only way to I guess rid yourself of that guilt is not to accept that the fact that they weren't vaccinated is the reason why they've become so unwell, but to you know believe that it had nothing to do with it yeah they're looking for a scapegoat because, how are you going to how yeah, yeah cuz how would you get around it other, how would you live with yourself otherwise yeah what about the actual patients themselves oh, the, they, are they finding remorse in the final sort of hours or are they are still fighting i've it? heard quite a few stories of people literally just breaking down in icu being like i should have should have gotten the vaccine i don't know why i didn't there's people who get to that stage yes yeah um and then start then you know, it ends up with family problems. They start hating people in their family because they're like, they told me not to do it and I listened to them and yeah. look the situation I'm in. A lot of back and forth like that, but ultimately the really bad ones, they can't talk. Yeah. Because they've got to, yeah. What about, um, what about mental health debriefing, man, for all like frontline workers and stuff? Oh, that's done really well. So, um, whenever like, are you there's finding a- support in that sort of thing, it, man, just, just, ex- just listening to what you would have to be dealing with, man, I'm, like I'm getting broken up. Yeah, no, I mean? no. Everyone's there for each other, though. You're always working with such a great team, and even when you are overwhelmed, everyone's helping each other um, and doing their best. And everybody doesn't matter what their beliefs are, um, doesn't matter what their background is, vaccinated or unvaccinated, they get treated the same. Yeah, and they get treated well. And yeah, we respect everyone. It's just unfortunate that uh, there are a lot of people who are becoming so unwell who aren't vaccinated.